The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. It's interesting at these times when there's big changes that uh, it feels really good to be together. And uh, it seems especially relevant that we're this week uh, looking at this topic of of love, and uh, you might have already realized this, but there's there's really no way to show up in our lives formally in our meditation practice or informally all through the day. There's really no way to be aware, to be mindfully aware without this quality of love enlivened or realize set emotion and uh, it's and unfortunately it's easy for us to be forgetful of this basic most basic really capacity of the heart to connect i think that's actually a good definition of love is this capacity to be close right because a lot of times it's not easy to say yes to life as it is to have, you know, it may be really unpleasant, maybe really scary, maybe really, um, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And to really let it in doesn't mean we want it to be that way. Love does not mean we want the conditions to be the way that they are, but love and compassion means we're willing to include. Why are we willing to include things that are difficult? Because that's how it is, right? It's like if we say no, we're saying no to life. But sometimes life is uncertain. Sometimes life is difficult. And the question is, are we going to get tight? And in a sense, we can't really do it anyway. But this is why it causes so much suffering, this idea of distancing ourselves from the way it is. It doesn't really make sense. Some of you might know of um, a teacher named Reb Anderson. He's actually from Minnesota. He was one of the early Westerners to practice with Suzuki Roshi, who started the, started the San Francisco Zen Center in the 60s. And then uh, after Suzuki Roshi died, um, he was a second abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center and Tassajara and Green Gulch Farm, north of San Francisco. They had quite a beautiful operation there with their Dharma community. And uh, But he has this wonderful teaching where he says something like, you know, an ordinary person, somebody who isn't, doesn't have a deep, hasn't developed a practice, doesn't have a deep practice, an ordinary person is vulnerable some of the time. Somebody who's really developed a practice they're vulnerable all of the time. And this is a, it's a really important teaching because a lot of the times we come to the practice because we don't want to be vulnerable. It's like, I want to be invulnerable. We have some, you know, whether it's Wonder Woman or James Bond, I mean, we've, we've been sort of programmed, or maybe you have a more updated, cool version of, you know, being invulnerable. And... Uh, 
not touched by the vicissitudes of life, by the ups and downs. Don't really care what other people think of you. But I think a more useful image or simile for awakening is a wisdom, an understanding that's not afraid to be touched. So the heart is vulnerable. It's constantly being touched. We're constantly aware that there are beings who are being oppressed, beings who are suffering. We're constantly being touched by the very real beauty in life, the kindness, the little kindnesses, the big kindnesses. The heart's constantly being touched and moved, but the wisdom in the mind, the love in the mind, it's like it knows how to feel all of that, knows how to be intimate with all of that, knows how not to be confused by the enormity of what we're feeling. And this is a very challenging, interesting place in practice because there are lots of shadows where we have a sense of like somehow wanting to be distant, right? We even have, it looks that way, like when we're sitting down in our formal meditation here or at home, or you go off to some cave or you know, quiet place for your retreat practice, it seems like, oh, that person's really distancing themselves from the messiness of life. You know, they're not listening to the radio, they're not reading the news, they're not actively trying to make the world a better place. So I guess they just don't care. Maybe that's what their strategy is to not care, or their strategy is to disconnect. But that's not the practice, right? So when we do do that, you know, when we do take 45 minutes to sit in the morning or whatever time you have, or you go on a retreat, put aside some time, to let things settle. What we're really doing is we're developing this strength, this spiritual strength, to be radically present, to be really awake, to be really sensitive and undefended so we can have kids or be an activist or you know, earn a living or you know, be a citizen, fall in love, but not be burdened by the sensitivity that comes with engagement. That's really the heart of the practice. So although there are a lot of metaphors, there are a lot of practices that involve retreating, secluding ourselves for periods of times, it's not an end in itself. Like the Buddha, just as a, an example, a model for us, you know, he did his practice, had some deep, powerful insight, transforming insight, and then he spent 45 years wandering around northern India, what's now northern India, teaching, always close to the village. You know, he could have just sort of hung out in some secluded place, like, why bother? The world's so screwed up. Why bother teaching or getting involved? Right? And then the other nuns, monks, other wise people who sort of had the same insight, the same awakening he did, he said, go off for the benefit of the many, for the good of the many, and don't walk on the same road. That's what he said, you know. Don't go the same way because you're going to run into the same people. Go different ways as you wander about so that 
other people who might find these teachings useful can hear about them. So their life was spent just in this generous service of you know, meeting people, modeling how to be intimate without being burdened by the exposure, by the vulnerability. And so when we're sitting formally or when we go on retreat, we're, we're really learning how to let go of the defense, the armor, learning how to feel deeply, learning how to see the messiness of our own conditioning, see our own fear, our own hate, our own lust, our own greed, learning how to see the beautiful qualities of our mind, like we were doing tonight. Oh, this heart is capable of being good. Anybody have that sense tonight during the guided meditation? Like that goodness that I'm tuning into, it's kind of for its own sake. It's like, I mean, hopefully, especially as you develop this practice, this reflection of love or kindness, you see that it's just there for its own, for no reason whatsoever. It's just there when the distracting activity of worrying and planning and analyzing and hating, when that activity is put aside, then we see this generous quality of the heart that its very nature is to want this willingness, this ability to include. This very nature, its very nature is to be unafraid, to not make up boundaries. You're in, you're out, you're good, you're bad. That's a sort of uh, on the surface of the mind. And it's a very convincing service. It sort of gets our attention. And we don't really know what's underneath it. One of my teachers, this Burmese Buddhist monk, Sayada Utejaniya. Sayada just means teacher in a monastic sense, and so his name is Tejaniya. He's got a nice website. I think it's just, I think it's Sayada Tejaniya, Sayada Utejaniya.org, where he has lots of his teachings and books of his you can download that have been translated in English. But a simple teaching of his. You have to accept and watch both good and bad experiences. You want only good experiences. You don't even want the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is that reasonable? Is this the way of the Dhamma? Right? Dhamma or Dharma just means the way it is or nature. Right? Is this the way of nature to only want things to be the way we think they should be? In a way, real wisdom and love depends on the twists and turns of our lives. Because the wisdom and love I'm looking for, and I think ultimately we're all looking for, is the kind of wisdom that uh, knows how to show up no matter what's showing up in our life. You know, so that the wisdom isn't there when it's like a beautiful day like today, but it's not there when you know it's cold and wet or stormy. One of the images actually in the in the Buddhist tradition is 
one of the images for metta, which is the Pali word for that basic goodness of the heart. Often it gets translated as loving kindness, metta, M-E-T-T-A. You probably have seen that around. A friend of mine who teaches down in Rochester, Doug McGill, who sometimes teaches here, he got the license plate, metta. You'll see it. Sometimes he's here at Common Ground. You'll see his car in the parking lot, metta. So loving kindness, one of the attributes or one of the ways that it's described in the tradition, it has this capacity to fill up the space as it is in the same way that when you pour water into any vessel, any vase, any jar, the water is going to perfectly fill that container. It doesn't have to think about it. It just it's, it's in its nature to fill that container. And when the mind or the heart is established in that basic friendliness, and you, this is something, it's not like philosophy, you can see this is true. Like when you're in that good place, when the heart, that good heart has been activated, and you're kind of living out of that space, you'll see as you go into a situation, you meet with someone, you'll see that you just show up, you know how to show up, what you say, what you don't say, how you are in that space. It's like, just right, it works. Sort of what, what needs to be done is done. What needs to be said is said. And it, it's this funny, we get this funny feeling like, I mean, it, it's, you don't want to say like, oh, I'm so great, I'm so beautiful, but that's the feeling like, we're j- in the same way you'd appreciate another person being really skillful, really beautiful, really appropriate, you see that same thing because it doesn't seem personal, like your capacity hearing yourself say the right thing in the right way, in the right moment. You can really appreciate it as something that's truly beautiful, but there's no unwholesome pride in it. It's just like, it's a thing of beauty. In the same way when you see somebody else doing it, well, that's how you handle that situation. That was a thing of beauty. I so appreciate just being in the same space to see it. You can also feel that way about your own actions, your own words. And just to see the nimbleness of love. And another thing that's especially relevant for some of you today, given, I'm sure, what seemed like a real shock from the election returns for some of you, is like love, real love, it isn't surprised. I mean, this is the thing about when that quality of wisdom or love, and they're really just two sides of the same thing, nothing disgusts it, nothing surprises it. Right? Because the, the sort of essence of that wisdom love is that, of course. Right? Because wisdom love understands that anything can happen. Anything that can happen can happen. And that we don't know. It's also, it's sort of, on the one hand, it knows anything can happen. And on the other hand, it knows, and I don't know. I, I'm not capable of knowing all of the twists and turns, all of the inputs to this interdependent unfolding that's going on here. How could I know? How could I even have an expectation? Only if I was temporarily deluded, thinking that I know. But wisdom and love, when it's strong, knows that it doesn't know. Knows that anything can happen. And here's the important thing. And knows that everything's workable. 
Right? There's a way to continue being loving and wise even when really beautiful and when really difficult, <clears throat> unexpected things happen. Oh. I don't know if I'm just morbid, but I remember, like, especially when I was really getting into practice, just partly a kind of restlessness in my mind, but you know, to think about really provocative things happening. And uh, I, I've had a fascination with apocalyptic movies ever since I was a young person. And, uh, but part of it is like, um, like challenging that premise that everything is workable. Okay, nuclear holocaust. You know, in the last, could I show up? I don't know if you saw, this is really dating me, but On the Beach... Maybe some of you read the book or saw the movie. It's really, yeah, I think even today, it's probably, I haven't seen it in a while, but still probably a pretty moving book and movie for folks. But it, it was just someone's imagining uh, nuclear war. And as the radiation cloud slowly drifted to the southern hemisphere, you know, there was a few people left in New Zealand. And uh, just sort of marking the days because everyone knew what was coming. And uh, just sort of uh, interesting, like, well, how could, would, would I be able to show up in what we might imagine from a, a less skillful view, like, oh, that, that's horrid, right? Because it is, I'm from, obviously, from many perspectives, that would be terrible. But what would be the point of inhab- the mind inhabiting a really negative state? in those last weeks or months. I mean, what's, why would we do that? Is there any functional reason for us to inhabit negative states of mind? Is it helpful to be angry? Is it helpful to be hateful? Is it helpful to uh, give up, for example? Like this is a, you know, with global warming, and, uh, you know, things may change and, you know, people might have different opinions. But, you know, just assuming that uh, the future generations and many of the species on the planet might have a harder time in the decades ahead, you know, and that it, how difficult it is for human beings to kind of organize themselves. And especially when things are more long term, you know, we can, we can kind of take things serious if the monster is right in front of us. But if it seems more abstract, appears to be out in the distance, it's like just doesn't seem as important as what I'm going to have for dinner or, you know, what am I going to do about this problem in my life? Will my job still be there in, in a year? You know, things like that that are can feel really obviously important. So it's the same sort of thing, like can we include all those sorts of things, racial injustice, the sort of embeddedness of racial injustice and fear of difference that we have and class issues, economic injustice issues, and just the way that power plays out around gender, sexism, around race, around economic groups. 
So is it helpful, functional in any way for our heart to be afraid of that? Or can we include all of that uncertainty? Are we willing to sort of lean in with love and compassion and and really drawing on the strength of that, the stability of that, the stability that allows us to stay right in the middle and actually to feel refreshed in the engagement instead of depressed or oppressed or exhausted by the engagement. And this is true whether you think locally like dealing with your kids, dealing with your aging parents, dealing with a stressful job that you really need because you've got to pay off school loans or whatever it might be. Or you, you've got the privilege to work on bigger issues. You're, you've got some space in your life or whatever reason that allows you to engage, be concerned about some of these important issues that we're all in the middle of, but often unaware of or don't feel like we have any space to listen, to show up, to respond to. So this is such an interesting dynamic in our practice. Is the messiness of our life, even the messiness of our own personality and the messiness of those around us, their personalities, and then the messiness of the culture, the you know, economic, governmental structures we all live with, is that a problem for our practice or is it actually the place for practice? You see, why can't that be the place where we, it's like that tension itself is the place where we realize the heart that isn't afraid in being in the middle of it. As I often say this to people, you know, that I'm doing spiritual counseling with, like in terms of intimacy, intimate relationships, falling in love, having a family, and, you know, because there's a, especially in Buddhism, there's a real ethic around monasticism and being celibate or, you know, or at least living a simple life, right, as a lay person. And I think there's a lot of value. It's a little bit like what I was saying earlier, the value of having a 45-minute period every day to sit where you can, I, you know, for that 45 minutes, you're not the owner of a cat, you're not a mother, you're not an employee, you're not a citizen. You're just this awareness being undefended, right in the middle. right? But then we take whatever insight, whatever confidence we gain in our, from our moments of being relatively secluded, and then we use all the messiness in our life, our responsibilities, our duties, the world we live in, we use it as kind of a testing ground to see can this wisdom, this wisdom that knows how to include, this wisdom that trusts non-attachment, that trusts non, uh, basically non-hate, non-greed, what will it look like when I show up in this place in my life? What does it look like? How does it express itself, <clears throat> protect and inform this place in my life? How does it allow me to be engaged, to be responsive over here when I meet with this 
person in my family? And how about meeting something beautiful? So not always difficult, right? Actually, generally speaking, when you get pretty good at dealing with the really difficult stuff in life, then the greater challenge is to learn how to maintain that love and stability and vulnerability with what's really beautiful and good and not get confused by it. They even have a term in the tradition, they call it the corruptions of insight. It's the phrase, like when you start having more and more stability, more clarity, more joy, more love, more fearlessness, and then the sort of uh, triggers the old habits of attachment. You start thinking, I'm wise, I'm loving, I'm stable, I'm beautiful, I'm good, I'm enlightened, have you noticed? <laughs> and that's called the corruption of insight. When, when the mind starts to get confused by its own beauty, its own goodness, its own stability, clarity, resilience, right? And then it's so easy as if we're looking down on somebody who's a little restless or somebody who's a little reactive. And it's, you know, I'm not reactive. And we, keep, we completely miss that. Well, that's a reaction right there. You know, the thought that I'm not reaction, reactive is my reaction to seeing the reactivity. You know, you poor person over there. And I think that's a little bit, you know, this dynamic that fuels some of the political divisiveness in this country is a little bit of this, um, from both ends, this sort of higher, holier-than-thou attitude from both sort of camps, you know, just as a stereotypic statement. But that, I mean, I see it in myself. I was talking to somebody earlier today about, you know, how I noticed I liked indulging in some of the comedy, some of the humor about the political situation. But I started to notice more and more, even though it was nice, it kind of ventilated the fear and the concerns and some of the tension that I had and maybe a lot of us have around some of the political issues. But I noticed how demeaning it was. It was as as if it's okay to demonize, to put down, to, to put people in a box like, well, they're stupid, or they're ignorant, or they're missing the point, you know. It doesn't mean that there isn't something called ignorance, clearly. I see it in myself, I'm sure you see it in yourself, and we think we see it in other people quite often. And it may be true, like sometimes we might be right, like they're not seeing clearly. But it's, so it's not so much that, it's what the mind does when we see that this mind is being ignorant or your mind, I think your mind's being ignorant. It's what do we do? Like, Do we use that to sort of reinforce a sense of separation and division? As if that, there's a positive function to doing that with each other. Well, we know where that leads. It leads to the world we live in. right? That habit of getting identified. So it's like we might blame the analytical mind or the discriminating mind that sort of looks and understands, but it's what the mind does with that discrimination, right? 
it takes it personally and it builds like who's on the inside and who's on the outside. And really love is just the opposite. And you know, we learn a lot from those times we sit and meditate. We learn exactly how to be out in the world, to be engaged, to be an activist, to be a parent. It's not like they're two different worlds we're learning about. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He's a Western monk, one of the senior monks in the Western monks in the Thai forest tradition. He's been an abbot of a monastery in England for many years and now is retired and sort of a wandering monk. And he wrote in, uh, in a beautiful article, Nothing is Left Out. He said, metta, so this basic goodness of our heart, metta includes the totality of our world and experience. It includes every possibility, the born and the unborn, the created and the uncreated, those who are present and those who are absent. With metta, we contemplate all phenomena, all sentient beings in terms of loving kindness and inclusiveness. Rather than in the divisive terms of which is best, which is worse, what we like, what we don't like. Metta then is a way we relate to the totality. In this way, we develop a sense of well-being, recognizing that everything belongs in the totality, that there is nothing we can think of or imagine, nothing that has ever happened to us that doesn't belong. So that's, that's a real provocative thing and and for some of us really relevant right now with some of the shifts and some of the things we as human beings face in our world. Does it really belong? But you see, that's not a value statement that it belongs, like I want it to be here. It's not about that. It belongs because it's here. How could it how could there not be causes and conditions? It's like people misunderstand this about karma, like when people wrongly say, you know, because the attitude is wrong, like, oh, you know, somebody loses their job. Well, that's their karma. That doesn't mean they deserve to lose their job. It just means that causes and conditions have led to this being the reality for this person at this time. just means it's a lawful unfolding of causes and conditions, that we as humankind find ourselves in this situation right now, it belongs because there are causes and conditions that have led to this. And then the question is, like, if we can really let it in because we understand it belongs, then we might know how to respond appropriately precisely because we're willing to be intimate, willing to really feel what it feels like to be here. Because if we're not willing to touch down in the middle of it, like think about it, it's a little bit more complex than some of the bigger issues, but think about it in terms of an intimate relationship, your partner, your relationship with a child or with a spouse, a, uh, a sibling, a good friend. And let's say there's been some challenges in the relationship lately or between you and a boss so if you're, and that doesn't mean you actually have to be face-to-face with the person, but if you have to be face-to-face with what you're feeling in terms of the relationship, how are you going to know 
how to hold that relationship, how to respond, what to do or not to, whether to continue in the relationship or not, unless you're willing to feel what you feel. And you can't feel what you, what you feel unless you appreciate that it belongs. I may not have thought that my life was going to be like this, that I would end up like this, that I'd be in a relationship like this, but here I am. So I guess it belongs. I guess the appropriate thing to do is say, yes, it's like this now. It is like this now. And remember, it doesn't mean this kind of acceptance doesn't mean that we would have chosen this to happen. It just means it's just this clear, grounded acknowledgement. It is this way now. So is it more functional, more skillful to open, to include the way that it is? Or is it more functional and skillful to close down or to push away or to blame or to get distracted? You know, that's the... (laughs) My wife and I decided last night, instead of watching the election returns until later, you know, instead of suffering for a couple hours... So we decided to watch a movie we've been wanting to watch for a long time, which is sort of ironic choice. We watched The Big Short. I don't know if people have seen that movie. I guess a lot of you have seen that movie. It's a really good movie. But it's, uh, it, it's a little bit more of the same of the rug getting pulled out, you know, where we realize, one, this is about the financial meltdown about, when was that, seven years ago or whatever that was, nine years ago. And um, and it's it's really the rug getting pulled out from our arrogant and deluded sense that we know. We know all the forces, or that things should be a particular way. Yeah, the way we think it should be. And really entering, learning better how to enter the space of humility. And isn't that a great attitude? And I'm going to open it up for discussion in just a minute. But isn't that a great attitude, like as we keep navigating our lives, that we keep saying, yes, like I don't know what's around the next turn, you know, the Thursday morning turn or the Thursday afternoon turn or, you know, the next week, the next month, the next year turn. I don't know what's in front. but But I do have a deepening trust that like I can see it as a teacher, right? And where I'm learning how to let love and wisdom express itself. Okay, so now this is showing up. I have some faith. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I have some faith that in this dynamic of this moment showing up, that I can either, that ignorance can either manifest, you know, ignorance in the form of hate, in the form of greed, in the form of distraction, or I have faith that wisdom and love can manifest. And I'm going to really be there to see. You know, is this something skillful showing up or something unskillful? Is this mind, the way it's relating right now, contributing to the suffering in this here, in this heart and around me? Or is it contributing to the release of that suffering? And in that way, you know, if we have that attitude, how could we not learn how to be a human being, how to be a loving and wise human being? 
And you're not, we're not putting this trip on ourselves that I have to be wise and skillful and loving now. No. When we're ignorant and distracted and greedy and hateful, we see it and we see how it's contributing to the suffering in our heart and around us. And that makes an impression on our heart when we see it, honestly. It will change who we are if we see it. If we don't see it, it's not going to change anything. It's just going to add to suffering. Or if we're relating with love and wisdom, we'll see how appropriate that is, how beautiful that is. And that will make an impression. And we'll just more likely generalize, like, what is it that the mind, how is it that the mind's relating that allowed it to be so skillful in that moment? I.e., without self-centered delusion, you know, without taking things personally. So it'd be nice to hear from folks what you're learning about bringing love into your life and all these sort of direct and authentic ways, not as a pretending to be kind or pretending to be compassionate, but really feeling it as a beautiful but impersonal force in your mind, in your heart, in your life. And remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this. So we'll start back here if you want to pass it back. Second row of chairs. So I was lucky enough about a month ago now to meet um, a pretty well-known psychiatrist out in D.C. who's written a number of books that I really liked. And one thing that really caught my attention that he told me about was when he started sort of like an inpatient psych ward for people who were going through um, really severe psychosis. And there would be people who you know, thought there were aliens outside of their house and they had to be hospitalized, stuff like that. Um, and their model was that they would take everybody's complaints seriously and treat them as a human being. And they either didn't use drugs at all or only used them as a last resort. Um, and they saw a lot of people get over their, um, uh, you know, their troubles, their experiences. Um, and to me, I think a big part of it was that they were just taking people seriously and listening to um, their suffering and listening to them as a human being. Um, and so I guess the thing that's really resonating with me in the way that I want to show love right now is by um, even when I really, 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 really disagree with somebody's view, you know, especially um, in politics, um, (laughs) um, granting them the time of the day and like really just stopping to listen before I, not before I form a judgment because I think I, I'm always forming judgments in my mind, but before I act on that judgment. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. I wouldn't mind, if you have a, the name of the psychiatrist, if you'd email that to me, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Or write it on a piece of paper. Who would like to go next? Thoughts? Oh, please, you want to pass the mic over here? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm David, and um, I work on mental health units, and I'm in nursing school right now. And one of my favorite professors told me, in order to have like a real therapeutic relationship with someone, you have to become vulnerable yourself. 
and you're all, we're also taught too with if someone's in psychosis always to acknowledge what they're going through in their psychosis and not to not feel like they're having that experience yeah. so yeah I don't know thanks we can't hear that enough because it's not our you know it's not our habit to be willing to be vulnerable we, our habit is to sort of hold our ground because we think we need it. And it's a real sign of wisdom and strength and, uh, and love to be exposed, right? You can only be exposed, consciously exposed, willingly exposed, when you feel safe. When something is making you safe, as opposed to the ground you're holding to making you safe. That actually makes us vulnerable. Like when we have a fixed view, we're a fundamentalist in some way, fundamentalist progressive or conservative, you know, then it's like we're, we're holding tight because, we, because the tight ground we're holding to isn't really ground anyway. So it's an insecure place. So we have to realize the vulnerability is a place of strength. Because now we're not trying, we don't have to pretend that we're invulnerable. I know it's a little complicated, but we, we directly see that as we live our lives. Who would like to go next? Hi. Um, <clears throat> normally I have good formulated questions, but I'm struggling right now. I, you know, I don't know how we can't talk politics right now. And I don't mean that in the sense of debating what happened, but um, I don't feel surprised, but I feel disgusted, like deep, deeply disgusted. It's not because I didn't know. It's just because that seems like the accurate response to hate, you know, when, when you meet it in such a gross way. It seems like every time somebody says to me, it's going to be okay, I say, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. I mean, that's what we have to work with, is that a lot of people's lives were stunted through the Bush years. You know, A lot of people actually actively worked against that and couldn't work on or didn't have the tools, not of the age, not of the practice, not of whatever, to work on the stuff that happens in this room. But the question right now is because people... People are really suffering, and they were suffering before the election. Yeah, and will be suffering after the election. And I'm sure that the election, especially for many of the marginalized communities, was probably seriously traumatizing. Yeah. Um, but the question is, what do we do now? What is the skillful way? Like in your case, James, what's the skillful way for you now to relate to the disgust? What do you do with that feeling? If that's what's arising, it's not a question, should I be disgusted or not? If the disgust is there, then the disgust is there. Then the question is, what do we do with that energy? And, and that's sort of the one thing that sort of hangs me up if I just go into like my personal path around it, which is that day in, day out, I can experience apathy. I can try to not be overwhelmed by the amount of things I have to do in the world. And in the process of all that, I can forget how important it is to stay vigilant in my own mind 
around practicing the opposite of ignorance in a social sense and also to recognize you know i'm empowered as a as an individual on this earth by the dharma by the color of my skin by the place i woke up on earth you know like i know these things but i forget them and i forget that when you have a seat of empowerment you have responsibilities in the world that are daily and that's the hard part is like you know i have to admit that i find that if i don't feel the real bite when something like this happens i i don't stay vigilant it does remind us that's something i'm working with so yeah and and it's scary because the natural conclusion of what you're pointing out to all of us uh and i think it's right on is that actually we can't be happy and there's a sort of an equivalent in the buddha's teaching and in the buddhist tradition we can't actually be happy unless we give everything away. There's just no way. But how, what that looks like doesn't mean you, you have to like, give all your wealth away. But you, in a sense, in an inner sense, you do have to give it all away. Because any kind of trying to have safety is really blocking us from being free. So one way, and it's going to look you know, 120 different ways, you know, for everybody in this room, you're like the sort of fruiting, the full fruiting of your life as generosity, giving your life away, will look how it's going to look in your life. What does it mean for you not to be holding on to anything? So giving everything away does not mean you're not taking responsibility for your body, feeding yourself, having a retirement. It just means that real happiness comes from living a life that can be experienced as generosity. Everything we're doing. So even when you're taking care of yourself, it's like, yeah, I'm clipping my nails. It's an act of generosity. I'm buying some groceries for myself. But it's this non-discriminating generosity. So when we take care of ourselves, we're not excluding other beings. We're not like, favoring one group over another because that kind of division so this is why the more you go down this rabbit hole of I'm not even going to say Buddhism but just any authentic spiritual path you'll find yourself being less and less self-absorbed and more and more living for the benefit of all beings but don't turn that into some image you've got to live up to let it be a real organic natural unfolding of your life because you don't know what that's going to look like you can only figure it out one moment at a time like what does it look like in this moment for me to be living a generous life so coming to common ground or sitting down at home or even doing something more radical like taking a lot of your financial resources and a lot of your time and ignoring the very real issues that require attention and going away in a Buddhist meditation retreat. I mean, that could be the most self-indulgent thing in the world to do, or it could be the most generous thing in the world to do. And it really depends on the mind that's doing it. Only the mind that's doing it is going to know whether this person is just escaping responsibilities or really 
uh, doing the scariest thing, the most relevant thing, the most useful thing to help them give their life away for the benefit of all beings. It's very easy for us to judge other people for not living for the benefit of all beings as opposed to seeing how we're showing up in this moment and how can this moment of being here in community, talking with each other, how can this express this deepening value we have of giving our life away for what's actually good, what actually supports awakening and freedom from suffering and real love and wisdom. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. It's a really good point, James. Yeah, right behind you, James. Hi, I'm Steve. Um, listening to James, this morning I woke up and, well, I really didn't sleep much last night and um, had this feeling of, of fear and, and trepidation. And so I went to my bookshelf and I pulled off Pima Chodron's When Things Fall Apart. And I started rereading that. And I Everybody showed, should have a copy of their, that yeah, book on their yeah, bookshelf. Yeah. And I, I showed it to somebody at, at work and they said, I'm not familiar with that book. Now, obviously not getting the irony. So, um, <laughs> But in it, it was this, this part and it's kind of in the front of the book, so that's how I got to it today. But she tied hope and fear together that yeah. they're that they're linked and that in order to get rid of fear we have to get rid of hope and she suggested that rather than having on your refrigerator like today will be a better day than yesterday or smile she's you know have a abandoned hope as your mantra for uh, for that but i'm still trying to get my head around it but it just was a, a very interesting a very interesting yeah. thought and it, it goes right to the heart of what we're saying because as long as there's hope in the mind, then our love, our compassion is idealistic, right? We've got this ideal, like the utopian society out there, and we want it. And then everyone who seems to be in the way are kind of threats, so they deserve to be hated or feared. But the, the model that, in the way the Buddhist teaching is like moment to moment, like we can be generous in a moment. It's not like, Generosity isn't a stance. I'm a generous human being. Are you noticing? You know, And do I get certificates for being a generous human being? I get my name on buildings or I get people acknowledge me. But real generosity is something more, much more organic and more moment to moment. And so that fear and hope, it's like it's when life has been idealized. We're in the level of concept. We abandon that. And that allows us to show up in this moment and respond in this moment without defense, without separation. Can we live? Are we willing? And the thing about that is that our mind is in an unformed state. So like when we're serving the greater good, taking care of ourselves, taking care of others, we don't have a grand vision. And you know, a lot of good leaders, when, you, when they're being interviewed like near the end of their lives when they're older, they often say the same thing. They say, it's not like I had this great vision of sort of getting from A to Z. It was just like it ended up this way, you know? And this is like you can even, in a much smaller way, like a place like Common Ground. Nobody had an idea it would be like this when we started it in 1993, but now it's like this. Who knows what it will be in 20 years? We don't know. It could be just non-existent or some terrible 
institution that, you know, <laughs> you have to apply to come to? Or <laughs> like a country club, you got to apply and then put some money down? Or I mean, you know, we don't know. It could get really stinky, could become even more beautiful and healthy. We don't know. What? It could be a diner, a family diner like it used to be. Yeah. But what we can know is that it, it really it's skillful to live our life moment to moment. And all of our values we bring to the moment. And we drop the ideal of who we want to be. And we just try to be real in this moment. And like in a moment now we're going to be walking out. And you're going to be, you know, interacting in obvious and, you know, just conscious and unconscious ways. And can that be a beautiful thing? Can that be an act of generosity without any artifice, like, okay, I'm going to do it better than anybody else. You know? I'm going to be so friendly that you're going to scare people. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's like, no, it's like, how can it be also liberating? So it's, it's like nature, not somebody trying to be good or somebody trying to be wise. And this undermines a lot of activism is when it's part of somebody's ego trip to be an activist, to save the world, instead of just being a human being with a tender heart doing the next thing. Because that's what they felt the movement, as best they could assess in that moment, the movement was skillful and they let it flow into action. And of course, it was, it's never perfectly skillful, right? It's always going to be tainted with some fear, some greed, some aversion. But that doesn't mean non-action is more skillful. So we just learn. The, the real key is to keep learning as we engage, as we show up, as we hold back. We learn, oh yeah, that was really more about fear than about love. We learn, little by little. But let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Really appreciate the comments from folks. Feel free to hang out and chat more together if you like. We'll just take a couple silent breaths together. Feeling okay about letting go of the words. And allowing our heart to feel what the heart feels, to be touched. And may each of us, each in our own way, may all beings, each in their way, live for the benefit of all beings. May we all be part of the causes and conditions for real healing and freedom from suffering. May this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.